and load. This is Steve Dace. The Steve Dace Show. Greetings. Happy Thursday. Let's get to it. My name is Steve Dace. Todd Erzin, Aaron McIntyre. That's their names. They're here too. What's your name? Let us know by calling us at 888-900-3393. That's 888-900-3393. You can also let us know your name via the stevedace.com inbox. You guys know I'm going to get a ton of emails now, just people telling me what their name is. And, and I would I would respect that. I mean, we, we appreciate good snark like that here on this show. Steve at stevedace.com. That's how you can email the program, D-E-A-C-E. You can try, emphasis on try, liking us on Facebook. Just search for our name there. Follow us on Twitter at Steve Dace Show. Last name is D-E-A-C-E for those of you that are listening only here today. And don't forget to uh, find uh, samples that you can share on our new YouTube channel as well, youtube.com slash Steve Dace. Coming up later on today, we're to talk about the state of marriage. Now that the, even we've got some people on the left saying, maybe this eradication of the nuclear family thing wasn't the best idea after all. We'll talk about that a little bit later on. We'll have three non-political questions. Theology Thursday coming your way here at the bottom of the hour. But before we get to all of that, here is Aaron's rundown of what happened while we were away. What happened while we were away brought to you by lynching. The U.S. House of Representatives yesterday advanced a bill that would make lynching a federal crime in a 410 to 4 vote. The last known lynching took place about 40 years ago. The last abortion was like 40 seconds ago. But you do you, Congress. President Trump appointed Vice President Mike Pence to lead the country's response to the coronavirus. Alexandria, I pledge allegiance to the drag Ocasio-Cortez, says Mike Pence literally does not believe in science, end quote. Learning Spanish today, today's phrase is, science comes at you fast, bro. La ciencia te llega rápido, hermano. Stocks opened today sharply lower. The Dow Jones Industrial Average dropped 650 points already over those coronavirus fears. Mike Bloomberg had a CNN town hall last night. He once again talked about the system of government in China. If, if your definition is a democracy where people vote and pick their leaders, and that is not what China's about. And they don't seem to want it. They like their system, and I think they're wrong. Elizabeth Warren, who seems to be running for the position of Tonto to Bernie Sanders' Lone Ranger, also had a town hall. I'm going to be introducing a plan tomorrow to take every dime that the president is now spending on his racist wall at our southern border and divert it to work on the coronavirus. Florence, South Carolina Mayor Stephen Wukla fired up a Bernie Sanders audience at a rally last night. All right, Myrtle Beach. All right. How does it feel to be a bunch of radicals? Huh? A bunch of, ra- a bunch of revolutionaries. Hillary Clinton talked about receiving contributions from the now convicted sex criminal Harvey Weinstein. Well, it's true. He contributed to every Democrat's campaign. Uh, He contributed to Barack Obama's campaign and John Kerry's campaign and Al Gore's campaign and everybody's campaign. Um, I don't know whether that should chill anyone else from contributing to political campaigns, but it certainly should 
end the kind of behavior that he was just convicted for. ABC News has suspended correspondent David Wright after Project Veritas released an undercover video of the journalist bemoaning the network's unfair coverage of President Trump. Op-ed at The Guardian from someone named Emily Hamlin. My boyfriend's wedding dress unveiled my own shortcomings over masculinity. I'm quick to blame men for their toxic behavior, but in this case, I, the woman, was part of the problem. A New Zealand dude who feels pretty recently won a couple of gold medals in women's weightlifting. Laurel Hubbard won events at the Roma World Cup recently and could make his Olympic debut in Tokyo later this year competing against women. And finally, this headline from the Babylon Bee, Grizzly Bear shatters all pro wrestling records after identifying as human. And that's what happened while we were away. Oh, that's good. That's good. I like it. Aaron's Montage brought to you by our friends over at Riduzone. If you have fallen off the wagon, in fact, the wagon has run you over. All right, when it comes to your New Year's resolution to lose weight and eat right, you are not alone. About 80% of New Year's resolutions fail, usually by about this time of the year. Why? Because, you know, temporary diets, fads don't work. You got to change your lifestyle. Dieting alone is just too hard and working out is of great benefit, but really holistically for your health, more so than specifically weight loss, because you can't out-train a bad diet. And that's where Riduzone comes in, the only FDA-accepted supplement that includes OEA. That's the naturally occurring molecule that helps your body to know when you're full so that you burn stored fat and also reduce your calorie intake. Get your caloric intake under control because most of the time it's not what you're eating, but how much, all right? So get those cravings and those portions under control with the help, the all-natural help of, of, of Riduzone, which you can only get on their website at Riduzone.com, R-I-D-U-Z-O-N-E for Riduzone.com, R-I-D-U-Z-O-N-E. And if you go there and use my name, Steve, as the promo code, you're going to get up to 65% off your order. That's a massive discount. They'll throw in free shipping too. Free shipping and 65% off your order at Riduzone.com, R-I-D-U-Z-O-N-E, Riduzone.com. Promo code Steve. We are going to discuss the South Carolina primary. We still don't have any real post-debate polling, but all of the polling that comes out continues to be very good for Joe Biden in South Carolina. So um, we're going to fast forward 48 hours with the overtime today and say, hey, what happens if Joe Biden wins there? And does it maybe depend on the magnitude of the win or is it any win? Does it reset the board whatsoever with Super Tuesday just 48 hours after that. So it's fascinating to see that the the polling for Bernie Sanders for Super Tuesday is really good. The polling for Bernie Sanders for South Carolina is really bad. All right. So we'll, we're going to try to make sense of those two things uh, in the overtime today. If you are a Blaze TV subscriber, uh, good news for you. It'll be posted later today at blazetv.com slash dace. If you're not yet a Blaze TV subscriber, go there, and that's how you'll be able to get a discounted subscription to Blaze TV, courtesy of yours truly, which will give you access to all of the great programming we do each and every day exclusively here at Blaze TV, blazetv.com slash dace. I want to I get to Aaron's montage now, specifically the, the political fallout we are seeing from the coronavirus. Could you say that last part of it again? The political fallout? The political fallout we're seeing from the coronavirus. Yes. Because you have an obvious question, I'm guessing, right? Which is which is how how is a virus that was created or or 
incubated, whichever term you choose to use or theory you believe, but from, from China. How, how, is, how has that somehow become a domestic political shibboleth, right? Is that yeah, your question? That, yeah, that's, that's getting what I'm, I'm talking about. I mean, just I don't know if it still is 10 minutes before we went on the air. Trump virus was trending number one in the world on Twitter. Trump virus. A virus, again, that was either created and or incubated, depending on which origin story you choose to believe. But we, we have no doubt of where it hails from. Regardless of the origin, its birthplace is not in dispute, and that's China. Okay, so I, I have no idea how a, a, a Chinese vi- a China virus uh, is uh, makes Trump virus trending number one in the world on Twitter. Except that I do, and and this illustrates, I think, a massive difference in how Republicans and Democrats operate. And I, and I don't necessarily think it's because a good portion of you who call yourselves Republicans wouldn't do things like this, but you can't. Should I, should I explain what I mean? Yeah. yeah. Okay. So on the, on the Democratic side, I mean, it's, it's Rahm Emanuel's maxim, 24 hours a day. Screw that, dude. It's the Beatles, eight days a week. All right. Eight days a week. Never let a good crisis go to waste. It is in their default DNA. And even if it requires an admission that you have no self-awareness whatsoever. Because how many cases have we had recorded here in the U.S. now? Very you know, few. It's like, is it a few dozen, I think it is? All right. Um, if, is that wrong? Can you look that up? I'm going to look it up. Okay. Yeah. But it's I believe a very, very small number. All of them have been people who traveled abroad. There is now supposedly one. One that's a domestic that's, incubation? That's called community spread. That's the new word we got to get used to, I guess. Okay. Community spread. But it, it spread from where, though? That's as much as I know right okay. now. Okay. All right. For, for, because for the sake of argument for right now, since that one seems murky... All of the cases that we know for sure that have reached our, our shores were came from abroad, correct? Yeah. So you would think this would make one doozy of an argument for what? Border security. You would think this would make the greatest argument for border security. Like this would be like a self-evident argument. Like it should even require an argument. Like... In, in other periods of time in our nation's history, we would see a story like this and go so far the other way we would do bad stuff, right? Like put people in internment camps and treat them like second-class citizens because they looked or, or spoke like the people that might be doing bad stuff to us, right? We've done that in our nation's history, right? We've, sure. we've, we've, we have gone so far the other way in how we've reacted to these evils, that we have we've done some unseemly to evil things in our own past reacting to them right yeah okay but the impulse began from a place of normalcy just taken to extremes because that's what human nature tends to do we're not seeing that right now well you're seeing it in a few twitter feeds like you see charlie kirk has posted every day for the last 3 days over there at tp usa close the border okay but 
in a time not too long ago, you and I could probably remember times like this when we were kids. The reaction to an event like this would have been, uh, it would have been calls for an action similar to, well, then I guess we need to shut down the border so we stop letting this virus into our country, right? Yeah. That's not even on the table right now. And the other side will will do, Democrats will do whatever they possibly can to milk this for all of its worth. Even if the story in and of itself is a rebuking of their of their own premise, because they're not really required to have any self-awareness. They, they control the media, pop culture, and there's really nobody on an, on, a, on an existential, fundamental level taking them on there. Most of us have actually just figured out that's another America and, and kick the dust off our sandals and move on. So the audience that they're talking and communicating to doesn't require them to have any self-awareness at all vis-a-vis Elizabeth Warren attacking uh, Michael Bloomberg from the right the other night in that South Carolina debate on the issue of life. Hey, you wanted me to kill my child. I wanted to have my baby. You know, my boss wanted to fire me when I was pregnant, told me to, at least he didn't kill, tell me to kill my kid, Michael, like you told your underlings. I, I wanted to have my kid. And then this is the same woman that, you know, wants every form of child killing dismemberment tactic practice methodology on demand available and subsidized so the best moment she had in the debate the other night was an undermining of the premise of her own belief system (laughs) so who's going to hold her account do you know who's holding her accountable for that no there isn't anybody we're not her intended audience and the intended audience for those remarks has given themselves over to the, they've exchanged the same truth for the same lies. So they've been given over to their own depraved minds. They don't care either. These are people who delight in creating new ways to do evil and encouraging others to do the same. Okay? So there's, there's nothing, nothing to hold them accountable, at least not in this life. Nothing, really. So they don't have to have any self-awareness. And they can milk a crisis like this for any political talking point they want. And they, have, and they always do. Any story. Any, and, and literally any story. Anybody out there fact-checking Joe Biden's half of America? There's only 340 million Americans or something. And what do you say, 150 million Americans mm-hmm. have died yeah. because of gun deaths? Half of America has been blown away, okay? Um, nobody, again, who would, we fact-checked it on our side. We're not the audience. Nobody in the intended audience cares. Guys, Elizabeth Warren was the favorite to win this nomination until she started telling the truth. Remember that? Yeah. It's when she started telling, oh, I'll show you how we pay for Medicare for all. Let me lay it all out for you. That's why Bernie just says, I don't know. 40 billion, 50 billion. I I don't know. In one arm, it's all about um, uh, Fidel for literacy. And then the next next argument, I can't do basic math. Yes. That what you're talking about. Yes. You know why? No one's really asking him to. No, who, who's, who over there cares? And the only people that are bringing it up now are just doing it because he's the front runner. If Bernie Sanders was in sixth place, would they care what his Medicare for all plan cost and how much he was lying about what it was going to cost? Would they care? No. Would they be bringing it up? No. Do they even know what their own plans are going to cost? No, and they don't care. Okay? So Elizabeth Warren, her candidacy imploded because she tried honesty. All right? So that's not on the table here. 
And that, and you just never let any cri- any good crisis go to waste, or bad one for that matter. And you milk it for whatever it's worth. Even a story like coronavirus, which is the single greatest border security story we could have possibly concocted, except if one of the drug cartels went on YouTube and said, tomorrow at 3 p.m., we are going to send a thousand of our fully armed operatives across the Rio Grande to kidnap your daughters for human traffickers to be pimped out to do um, uh, 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 seller porn and uh, snuff films. And we dare you to stop us. And then at 3 p.m. the next day began, oh, and we will be snorting cocaine while in the in the middle of our marching and just freely handing out bags of blow. That's the only other more obvious case we I could come up with for for border security than this virus. And yet, you will see Democrats take this and run with it. Even though it's a story that undermines really their entire ideology. Can't trust centralized healthcare systems, can't trust Right. Socialist democracies. Okay, uh, uh, we, it, it's a terrible idea to have an open border. Right, um, the lack of infrastructure hurts the poor and the indigent. The, should I go on? Is there any other? Is there any other democratic talking point that this story doesn't undermine? Women and children and minorities hardest hit. Should I continue? I can't think. I mean, it, it hits them all. Nonetheless. They're out there right now leading the charge to politicize this. Now, if you had a real political party as an alternative, your leaders would have gotten together about five seconds after this story. The first time, what was the story that, that, that we found out the State Department let some people in against the travel ban? Oh, yeah. yeah with, and, 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 and one of the stories was Trump found out about this and he was incensed, right? If you had a real Republican Party, here's what would happen. Y'all would take that story. You get in your secret, you know, your secret group chats, your secret uh, enclaves, and you'd be like, you know what? This, this is the angle we've been looking for to finally convince the American people we have to shut down that southern border. Shut it down. Get rid of the drug traffickers. Get rid of the human traffickers. Get rid of the drug cartels. Get rid of the near to wells. Get rid of the rapists and thugs. Get rid of the people who are coming here for slave labor and driving down our wages. We're going to shut that border down right now because this is a national security threat, right? Yeah, yeah. That, that's that's what like if the Republican Party operated the way the Democrats did, that's that border would be shut down before Charlie Kirk had to tweet about it once. It'd be shut down. And then there'd be like an Oval Office address with President Trump talking about why he had to shut the border down. It might even end with a God bless America, you know, and stand for the flag, right? A true moment of American nationalistic jingoism and we all applaud, right? Right, that's, that's what a real alternative party would do. And I think there's a good bit of you that would do that. I do. So I don't think it's that Republicans won't do stuff like this, but that they can't. 
Because the truth of the matter is, corporate America and your corporatist donor class, it's going to take a lot more Americans contracting and then dying of coronavirus to get them for one nanosecond to not want the free flow of human chattel across that border. How many stories have we seen? We thought, boy, this is going to turn the tide. We had that murder here in our home state a couple of years ago, right? Big time Republican. But then mm-hmm. you found out it was a big time Republican donors, ag business that hired this guy. And they didn't have E-Verify. And then remember, poof, faster than you can say Overton window, that, that story just went away. Do you remember that? Doesn't it seem like that poor girl got murdered by the, that illegal alien in Iowa like, 75 years yeah. ago. Yeah, Molly who? Yeah. It's like it never happened. And you, and like the Democrats could like see, didn't he? And, and funny that they didn't seize on this. Huh. Evil, Republican, corporatist. Bringing this near-to-well, harboring them in the country so they could kill this poor, wasn't it a young single woman, by the way? Mm-hmm. One of the 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 key constituencies of the Democratic Party, and yet they they let that story just fade away faster than you can say Las Vegas shooting. Because, see, I, I think the alliance that you have in, in, in the Republican Party, because I'm not in it anymore, and by God's grace, you know, what it would take to have me come back, if the party was capable of it, I probably would have never left. But the alliance... That is the Republican Party. Doesn't permit this kind of action. That's why you're always, that's why you're always screwed. And it has nothing to do with media bias. Most people are not, just about nobody that would ever, ever think of voting for a Republican for a nanosecond consumes like any of this media that is so biased. Like almost nobody does. Almost nobody does. You know, that trick vote they had in the House yesterday about banning lynching. I, I was it, it wasn't already illegal to murder somebody? Uh, apparently, that's... I, 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 didn't, I didn't know that. Was, is murder, was murder illegal yesterday? Gray area, apparently. Apparently, okay. But let me tell you what that is. That's just some trick vote. So they can, you know, get, hopefully get some Republicans in weak districts to vote against lynching and campaign on it in the fall. But, you know... And I said this to a buddy of mine who's in Congress yesterday. 95% of the people who will ever consider in one synoptic impulse of whatever consider voting for you aren't even aware of this legislation. And the other 5% don't care. Okay? But, but that's not your issue. The issue is you're aligned with people who will not permit you to do what it takes to win because they don't agree with you. Because Mitch McConnell will lose his damn mind and all of his corporatist donors will lose their damn minds if you shut that border down. And in a perfect world, I think Trump would actually go along with shutting it down. I think, I think dude, this is a guy that understands you don't let a good crisis go to waste. Keep in mind, this guy was a Democrat till 10 minutes before, after, before he came down an escalator in 2015. These have all been his friends. He's donated to most of them. 
Dude donated money to Al Sharpton. He understands never let a good crisis go to waste. The problem is he's always thinking, you know, if I go against these guys, then, you know, I need McConnell to save me from getting impeached and everything else or to get me my judicial nominations. So he's handcuffed. You're, this is what happens when you are aligned with people who don't share your value system. Inevitably, Stalin turns on you or you just handcuff yourself to maintain the alliance. That's where you're at. So you're never going to be, as long as you're aligned with people like that, and then, and then you're trapped because if you think if you don't align with people like that, we can't win, and then the Democrats win, and it's checkmate, right? And it's just a drain circling over and over and over and over again. Believe me, I am beyond sympathetic to it. I did it myself for most of my adult life. I finally just made the decision for my own sanity. I, I, I just had to get off that train. But, but I know why many of you write it, and I empathize with you. I get it, totally. I do. And, and you're nodding your heads to everything I'm saying right now, because you know I'm right. And I'm not right because I'm some kind of sage. This is obvious. I mean, this is just a matter of who's willing to say this. Many of you, most of you would do, the th- would do what I am suggesting you should do or would have done it before it ever was suggested. But you can't because your current political affiliations won't permit it. And that's, that's why we're screwed. Has nothing to do with media bias or academia and the rest of that. Oh, oh, oh that's going to screw us when Aaron's generation fully emerges. But we're not at that point yet. That, that's, you know, that's why we've lost the last 25, 30 years. Because we remained aligned with the people that never wanted Ronald Reagan to come to power in the first place. And then the minute he left, they just took, systematically took back control. And then instead of taking them out, we cut deals with them. Always concerned about the next election and the next election and the next one. And the other side just said, we're, we're, just, we're out here to win the generations, man. You can have elections. Because if we win the generations, we'll control all the cultural sectors anyway. Your elections are almost irrelevant. We'll get, you know, we'll get one judge from the Babylon district of the 666th circuit to overrule your president anytime he wants. And you'll never stand up to it. Because, and why? Why hasn't why Trump stood up this? His own attorney general won't let him do it. That's why. Won't support him. But he, do, he does have some, some good speeches, though. He gives a great speech. Like a, lot, like a lot of those kind of Rubio Bush Republicans gives a great speech, touching all the right worldview points, and then ultimately doesn't really do anything about it. Yeah. This is why you're screwed. Now, I don't know what the plan is out. I don't know, other than you need another political vehicle. I just, I don't know where that would come from. I'm, I don't have the wealth and reach and platform to be the the catalyst for such a, you know, an, an organism to emerge. So I'm every bit as frustrated as you are. And I, and I am empathetic to the defensive nature of this. I mean, I, again, I went out and voted for a whole bunch of people in 2018. I don't even like that a few years prior, I would not have voted for. But I just voted straight ticket Republican for the first time in almost 15 years because a lot of the defensive impulses that a lot of you wrestle with when you're in this party every single day. But this is, this is, and so maybe the first step here is to admit this. And, and maybe one of the reasons why the, the path forward or a solution to this dilemma hasn't emerged is we haven't been willing to admit this. Right? I don't know. But that's the issue here is is you're 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 playing one handed. 
You know, I mean, they've got Trump virus trending on Twitter. Your guys are coming up with their own um, conservative family medical leaves, conservative Green New Deals, and raising the cigarette smoking age and banning vapes. I, you know, that's that's your issue. You know, all your generals pretty much suck. Hard. I mean, that's that's your issue. You know, so it, it, really hard to win when you're held back by your own leaders. And I, I don't, I thought, I thought the solution to that was primary, the primary process and everything else. I had devoted several years of my life to that with minimal success. And except for a couple of outliers, like a Dave Bratt that I didn't even, you know, most of us didn't even get involved in that race, thought he couldn't win. Except for a guy like that, who's now out of Congress, by the way, we ended up getting exactly like that, which we, which we, which we were lobbying against. I mean, Matt Bevin, as governor of Kentucky, largely became the very kind of governor Mitch McConnell would have been when he primaried Mitch McConnell for that U.S. Senate seat several years ago. So that's the issue. And I and maybe pointing it out and driving this point home, maybe the more if we just are more honest about this, some solutions will present themselves. All right, we're going to call a quick audible push Theology Thursday back to later in the show because I went long there, which probably shocks nobody. And I want to I want to get Todd and Aaron's feedback on what I just laid out, how the what you've watched in the last 24 hours with the coronavirus, I think is a is another but very real time vibrant um I think um simulation we've run back and forth many times on what's really the difference between how Democrats and, and Republicans operate in the public arena and why. Todd, what are your thoughts on that? Well, uh, we just talked about a movie a couple of weeks ago called Parasite. And it's not about a a literal uh, uh, parasite. Here, this is, we're, here we're talking about a coronavirus, but the real virus is the more dangerous virus is what Steve is talking about. It, it, it ultimately has infected every corner of our society. This game we play, it is utterly immaterial at this point how dangerous the actual coronavirus is or is not, to make Steve's point. Yes. It's just that it is. Mm-hmm. And so then both sides go to their corners and do what they do or do what they don't do. And there could be bodies lying in the streets because of it. And it'll probably still happen the exact same way as it could happen if this turns out to be a a, a scam and three, uh, the Olympics uh, go on as normal and everything that that's a, and that's why it's a virus, a societal virus. There, there is nothing. A real life and death potential contagion can't kill it. Th- that's the virus you got to worry about. We, we, we have we have a template in recent history, and Steve has talked about it. I think he just yesterday rattled some of them off. SARS, things like that. Things grown ups should be concerned about. Do grown up things to make sure they don't get blown out of proportion. 
wh- whether in terms of uh, the messaging or the actual health uh, impact. But here we are. We continue to move on. We have abilities to fight off these kind of things like never before in human history. There's many, many, many reasons to believe that we aren't getting an honest representation of what the hell is going on from China's end. It, it's all immaterial. Just say coronavirus or say anything. Everybody just goes to their corners and does what I mean, they at, do. Look That's at the timing the virus. of this. Look at the timing of this. This gets politicized almost immediately after Trump has a press conference yesterday where he attempts to address this in a presidential fashion. There's a, there's CDC is there. They speak. The vice president speaks. And so the minute that he tries to and, and he's always going to have a delivery in these settings that's just not typical of what you uh, get from a president. You, by this point in time, you've, you've made your peace with it one way or the other, or, you, or you're just never going to get over it, right? That's just, that's his personality. And everyone else has, everyone has to decide whether you can see through that or not, or you want to, for that matter. But, but this is time to politi- be politicized after he gives that address yesterday afternoon. Do you think that's a coincidence? No, no, it is not. Because not even with something as, as, unbiased as a virus in no context is Donald Trump permitted to be seen as simply the president of the United States. He is, he is not, he, he will not, it will not be permitted for him to be seen in any objective context, except the one that they wish to define. And so we're just running back Russian collusion, uh, Kavanaugh rape, uh, marauding rape allegations, um, and uh, uh, Ukrainian phone calls. What is this? 5.0, 6.0, Mueller. Wh- which version of this is this? I mean, it, that's what this is. It's just we're just running this game plan back. They they chose to politicize this after he gave the address, the press conference yesterday, and that's and that's not a coincidence. And that speaks right to what Todd was talking about. Just. You know what? Uh, every time it's third and three, what do we do? Yeah, we run the. We're the Green Bay Packers under Vince Lombardi. We run the power sweep. That's what we run on yep. third and three. All right, Trump out out there trying to be president. What do we do? We run back the Russian collusion, Kavanaugh uh, five That's what we do. See, and, and this is I was going to make a, a football analogy for for the the opening monologue as as well. You know, left America is always always on offense. They're always playing offense and and it's not just any offense. It's it's Patrick Mahomes at the helm offense exploiting every single hole that they possibly can for their gain. Always playing offense. Um the political arm of what's left of America, our version of playing offense is being chased for our dear lives by Jared Allen Dan Orlovsky walking out of the back of the end zone, getting a safety, and then calling it a win because we didn't give up a touchdown that time. That's yeah. that's our version yeah. of, of playing offense. And this this is another a- example of that. What you what you what we've been talking about. And Todd's example of this virus not really being a, you know, not really being a uh, 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 you know, um, microorganism type a type of virus. This is a virus of our own making, of our own minds, because th- we're susceptible to this um, all of the time. And we talked about that a little bit in the overtime. What's you know uh, talked about in the overtime stays in the overtime. But this is as a people, we are we as well are so susceptible to this. We we uh, we apparently thrive 
on just blowing things way out of of proportion because we gotta we gotta have the next uh, boy we gotta have the next piece of drama. Um, and maybe maybe some of this is just affected on Twitter. Do you think the vast majority of people out there um, really are concerned about coronavirus? We'll see. We'll see how much coverage it continues to get. But it is a virus of our own making, and it's not of the microorganism sort. If if the actual coronavirus had gone as fast as it took the New York Times to label this Trump virus, we would all be dead right now. No doubt. Yeah, we'd be the walking dead right now. You're right about that. Let's get to three non-political questions. We all have questions. Who am I? Why am I here? Where am I going? Who am I? A search and a question of identity. Why am I here? A question of meaning and purpose. Where am I going? Question of destiny. Some better than others. What sort of morality or proto-morality would you expect to find in a chimpanzee troop? Injecting some levity into the demise of Western civilization. It's three questions on the Steve Day Show. That's right, because we do need... A break from our impending death at the hands of Y2K, I'm sorry, of net du- net neutrality, I'm sorry. Uh, what are we on again? Oh, coronavirus, the yes. thing that we've been talking about yes. for the last half hour. Three non-political questions on the Steve Day Show. Uh, first question, what conspiracy theory most perplexes you? What conspiracy theory most complexes me? Um... I will say it's uh, the the Kennedy assassination um, because I've I've read and done studied tons on this in another era of my life, and we 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 still forget that in 1979 the U.S. Congress reopened that investigation, the House Select Committee on Assassinations, I think is what it was called back then, and the official position of the U.S. government for the last 50 years or 40 years, I'm sorry, has been that John F. Kennedy was killed as the result of a conspiracy. That Lee Harvey did not act alone, but was the lone gunman. That, that's the position that was, that, that's been the official position, but that almost never gets addressed or, or talked about, right? The, never, and so, um, it's, it's, that's almost like the Las Vegas shooter the illegal alien who uh, didn't, the, the GOP donors, uh, ag, agribusiness that didn't have E-Verify. The stories that just, if they don't, it's a mirror. You know? I mean, I, I don't know. If, if we had an American president gunned down in daylight, and then 40 years later, or, or, it, it, or what, 16 years later, 1979, the United States government cha- charged that the guy who did it didn't act alone. Wouldn't you kind of think that we'd want to know yeah. who he acted with? There'd be like a there'd be a, like a a heavy priority placed on acquiring that knowledge, wouldn't you think? Yeah. Nah. Especially because I mean this was Camelot, right? I mean so this was the ushering in of the new progressive '60s that he was going to be, um, you know, uh, America's modernist, right? Right, like, for sure. Hopeful, hopeful idealism, and he's just gunned down like that. You, you, you would think we'd, we'd really want to know the full breadth of of what occurred there and why, right? Yeah. Nah. nah Do you? Re- right. I can't remember if it's in the movie or if I know this because I saw something else at the. And I, 
But I remember I was the mullet guy saying, what the, when, when, when you find out that his brain, the president's brain disappeared. Yeah. Like That's it, actually true. Yeah. Like, yeah. It's like, okay, this is Twilight Zone stuff. This cannot yeah. be happening. Yeah. I mean, and they took him to the local hospital first and the local physicians yeah. examined him. And I mean, this is all in the record. I'm, we're not, we're not Alex Jonesing any of this. This is, this is all. And then how do you explain, um, I mean, it, it is it is documented in Lee Harvey Oswald's military record that, that he was a terrible shot. That's Lee, that is documented in his record. Okay, um, at, you know, and the nickname that was often given to it back at those times were Maggie's drawers. I don't know what that's a reference to, but apparently, that's what, if you were a terrible terrible shot, that's what they called you. I mean, he it, it was in his military record. He had a terrible shot. Uh, um, and then he pulled off what uh, the Warren Commission called the magic bullet theory. You know, mm-hmm. um, uh, it, it's uh, okay. You know, whatever. I mean, I, that's what I'm confounded by because we actually have an official verification of a conspiracy. It, it, this is official. It is the official U.S. government position. And it's a little bit like the whole thing with UFOs a few months ago where the government for the first time acknowledged that there have been some unidentified flying objects that they simply cannot explain. And everybody was just like, well, that's cool. But this is like a president. This is post Pearl Harbor between Pearl Harbor and nine 11. Most of the generation that lived between those two, those two dates would tell you November 22nd, 1963 was the most tragic day in America between Pearl Harbor and nine 11. Do you think that's fair? Mm-hmm. I mean, most people will tell you it was a pivotal moment in human history. Would it, would it touched off yeah. from that point on? And here we have the the U.S. government's official position is this was a conspiracy that 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 caused this to occur, and nobody seems all that interested in at least nobody with any real power in a title seems all that interested in finding out how what that conspiracy is or how far it went. So there you go. I love that line at the end of um, National Treasure. The last scene is them driving off, and he says, "Hey, honey, you want to know who shot JFK?" You know, it's, it's just speaks to your entire point. Yeah, yeah. My very briefly, mine is in reverse. Like I, it's the moon landing. Like I don't get like how there's just people that think it didn't happen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And when somebody finally, it happened like a while. He's still alive, but when somebody confronted um, Buzz, Buzz Aldrin, yeah. he just jacked him. Yeah, he yeah. Punched, punched him that. out. Yeah. I love it. Knocked him right yeah. on his backside. Yeah, yeah. he's like ninety two or something yeah. too. Yeah, yeah. Uh, did you guys see that? Uh, speaking of conspiracy theories, did you guys see that video uh, the other day of the flat earther daredevil who attempted to prove that the earth was flat by stra- strapping himself to a rocket mm-hmm. and shooting himself off into the air? And it, it, it like something happened to his parachute and he he, d- he did not meet a very good end. Oh, boy, that's man bites dog. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so Florida my, man. Yeah, th- <laughs> yeah. There you go. There you go. Uh, my my most perplexing conspiracy theory, crop circles. Now, I know a lot of them yeah. have been uh, explained or uh, debunked, but I'm still even even for people who, you know, who, who plant these and uh, have it staged to do that with some of the accuracy and precision that they do, wow, uh, it's it's pretty it's pretty weird. Okay, question number two: Excluding Batman, Superman, Iron Man, and Captain America, who's on your Mount Rushmore of superheroes? All right, so excluding them, 
Okay. You had, did he say four of them? Yeah. yeah. He says, so no Batman, no Superman, no Captain America, and no Iron Man. Correct. Right? Okay. So I've got Green Lantern on there. Yep. That's number one. Okay. I mean, he might be on my Mount Rushmore if we included those names. In fact, he probably will be. Spider-Man's got to be on there for sure. Green Lantern, Spider-Man. Um, I would put The Flash on there as well. Maybe the second best rogues gallery of any hero short other than Batman. It's certainly, he is certainly in that conversation. So, uh, so I would put him on that list. And I always get down to the fourth one. And that's always when I pause because I feel like I, I've got 15 options and I don't want to waste it. You know what I'm saying? I don't want to, I don't want to, I want to make that last one at count. So I'm going to let you go and I'm going to think for a second on what my fourth one is. So well, go ahead. Mine is driven largely from how I perceive them through the movies. Uh, I would say Spider-Man, Hulk, Wonder Woman, and there's got to be somebody I'm missing that I really am dug through the Marvel universe. I'm gonna I'm, go, I'm gonna put Wonder Woman as my fourth, even though as a boy I didn't really care much for Wonder Woman growing up. I so love what they did with her in the film, and the message of that film, and I think it's one of the best comic book films that has been made. That. I'm going to, I'm going to, I want to honor that. So I'm going to make that fourth on my list. So I've got Wonder Woman, Flash, um, Spider-Man and Green Lantern. Those are my four. Yeah, I'll go with, but it's got to be, a. will go with like the, the um, Black Widow slash uh, the friendship that um, Hawkeye. Hawkeye. Yeah. Okay. Right. Yeah, so Hawkeye is on there for me. Uh, I'm going with the Hulk, Thor, um, and Doctor Strange. I haven't seen. I haven't seen. Um, yeah, I loved Doctor Strange as a kid, yeah. but I was into all that occult stuff as a kid too. So uh, I think he's the the whole that thing. Yep, uh, that's pretty cool. Uh, question number three: What's the worst date you've ever been on back in your dating days? Oh man. Uh, I went out to dinner with a vegan. I didn't. Oh. I knew she was a vegan. I cannot imagine this. Yeah. Well, you're, when you're the, a, I, I wasn't principled as principled in a lot of ways when I was twenty four, whatever this was. Uh, yeah, you're a better man than I am uh, at your age, Aaron, for sure. Uh I knew she was a vegan, but ordering, I did not realize that just going to a normal restaurant, which we did, and she said it wasn't going to be a problem, but it, it made me very uncomfortable. I felt bad for the waitress. It, it, it was a process. All right. So whenever you ask me this stuff, and I, I, I always just go with what immediately comes to mind and think that's how I'm supposed to answer. Sure. Okay. Because keep in mind, I've, I've been married for almost 25 years, so it's, it's been a long time since I've been on a date. All right. Um. Uh, one summer I stayed up at, uh, at college on campus or I subleased an apartment or a, a, a home from some of the Michigan state baseball players with three other people. And I, we, we shared that place all summer long. And one of the people that was there was, um, an attractive girl that was, could not have been more left wing. Okay. And the friction in that home was high. And then she let it slip one night that one of the reasons the friction was high is because she actually liked me. Okay. And so she liked me 
because I was a big right wing guy. She couldn't be any, so she was almost conflicted that she liked me. All right. Because she couldn't stand the, you know, I was involved in college Republicans and all that kind of stuff. And so we went out, we decided, I asked her out, we went on a date. We had nothing in common at all other than physical attraction, but we were also 21. And uh, we went out on a date. We went and saw, you know what movie we saw? The movie you described to me, Vanishing, is the movie we saw. Oh, yeah? Yeah. And it was terrible. Uh, we hated it. Okay? And, and then we had like nothing to talk about at all because every conversation we would have would bring up the fact we disagree on virtually everything. Um, and then the movie was terrible and we couldn't have a conversation about the movie afterwards because it was bad. And the rest of the summer, life in that home, I, 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 my, my room, I had the basement room. And I mean, I just, I, I would come home and just go straight to the base because she was just insufferable and I wasn't much better. The rest of that summer was terrible after that date at that home. Yeah, terrible. Well, that'll do it for three questions. I don't have enough time to, to share my Thank you words. for reminding me of that. <laughs> Thank you for reminding me of the summer of 1993. Wow. All right, we'll come back. Thank God for marriage. We're going to be talking about that when we return. Theology Thursday, that and more coming your way in hour number two. here live and on demand on blaze tv radio and podcast i'm steve dace welcome back for hour number two if you are listening to us today via the podcast if you wouldn't mind leaving us a five-star review whichever platform you choose to podcast from we would be very very grateful because the more of those we get the more it helps the show to grow then the more likely we are to get to continue doing the show which i think we all want that thank you to all of you by the way that have already left us those five-star reviews please Consider leaving us more. I'm not sure if the algorithms will count those, but let's find out together. And if you haven't left us a five-star review yet, what's your excuse? Oh, you may not like the show. I don't blame you. I'm here every day. There's parts about it I don't like. But then just kind of keep that information to yourself. If you do like the show, think it's got a good beat and you can dance to it, please consider leaving us a five-star review for the children, our own. 888-900-3393 is the number. That's 888-900-3393. Steve at stevedace.com. That's how you can email us. Like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at Steve Day Show. Check us out on YouTube as well. Plenty of content there that you can sample and share at youtube.com slash Steve Dace. Well, one of the things we have noted in the last few years is the um, the left or the... Uh, paganism that's, I, I think, attempting not so cleverly to cast itself in the shroud of, of progressivism, they're getting bolder in this day and age. More, well, more honest. Uh, they, they feel as if that they've got the wind at their back. Enough hegemony in the culture that they, they don't even have to pretend anymore and can just honestly smash those stained glass windows. That, you know, well, you know, how's... Why can't, you know, we have gay marriage and all these other things when really it wasn't about expanding the institution of marriage, but destroying it. And a couple of think pieces have come out recently that I think kind of confirm this. One from former uh, Bushy, David Brooks over at the New York Times. Hey, the new, or actually he, he that's where he works. He wrote this for the Atlantic. Uh, well, hey, yeah, the nuclear family, that, that's just not attainable anymore. That's old school. It's 
That's from a bygone era and uh, time to evolve. And and then another piece that said in the last few days, well, you know, feminism, for feminism to increase, the uh, the traditional American family is going to have to decrease. Let's discuss those two notions with uh, our friend Brad Wilcox from the National Marriage Project. Good to have you with us, Brad. How are you? I'm doing well, Steve. How are you? I could be a little better, but I could be a lot okay. worse, if you know what I'm saying, brother. Sure, so, I understand. I, I, you know, let me start with the, the, what I mentioned here, right, at, at, before we get to the two specific issues. Is it? Do you enjoy, and maybe enjoy is not the right word, but does it make your job easier that, that a lot of people are just being really honest about the stuff that they were just kind of winking and, 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 you know, and nodding at. And uh, instead of showing you a little leg like they did in the 80s and 90s, they're just go ahead and drop and trow now. Does that, does that make your job easier that it's now more of an honest where we all really, what we all really think is out in the open now? Yeah, Steve, I think that kind of all of us are kind of being more, more forthright about what we think on these topics. And um, it's also, I think, the case that, you know, at least from my perspective, the sort of, arguments, the science behind uh, marriage just kind of continues to mount every day, even though a lot of folks in the culture, um, you know, are expressing doubts and opposition to to that idea. So, uh, yes, I think you're right. Because when you look at, let's try to look at it from the perspective of what's the objective, what's the data tell us? Is Are we better off as a society embracing the nuclear family and marriage, or or not? What do we actually have? Social science data that shows where this is at from a literacy, a criminality, um, from a prosperity perspective. Do we know the answers to these things? You know, Steve, we do. Although I think it's important to, to to note here. I think I actually agree with David Brooks's point about this idea that kind of a nuclear family on its own, you know, is often going to run up against big troubles because you know having a family. Um, takes a lot of financial effort, obviously a lot of emotional effort, a lot of practical effort. And if you have people in your corner, whether that's your kin or whether that's a church community or something else, um, you're much more likely to succeed. So at that point of his article, I agree with, but the point where I disagreed with Brooks was in his sort of idea at the end that kind of a, what he calls a family of choice, that is adults kind of working together to raise kids. Um, it takes not, a village. Right. And also his idea too, that kind of kin... Um, could take the place of um, married parents. Um, these two ideas, I think, are problematic. So the way I think about it is that sort of the nuclear family and the larger community have a symbiotic relationship, uh, not a substitutional, substitutionary relationship. Um, so they're interdependent. Um, but the idea that you can kind of rely upon grandparents or you can rely upon friends to uh, take on the task of raising kids is deeply problematic do we have data that tells us it's problematic because here's why i think the data is important because when i what i more and more in these debates brad i think we have to eliminate what are false objections and red herrings and then what are just skepticisms and honest scrutinies okay because you know we're living in a time and age where i don't even know how to i don't have to spell check the word chromosome let alone utilize it if your science won't tell me that I get to be the gender I want, damn your science. I don't care what your data says. And and if if that's the argument, fine. I'm okay if 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 we're being honest about that. But that requires a different tactic in responding to than if someone is just earnestly skeptical 
of, of what you and I are talking about here. And if that's the case, then we look at, hey, let's see what human precedent shows. Let's look at the data. What does it say? Is there, do we have a standing for this other than this is my philosophy versus yours? Right. So in an article for The Atlantic that I wrote in response to David Brooks um, called The Nuclear Families Indispensable, we talk about a lot of the research here. So we, we know from work done by Sarah McClanahan at Princeton, for instance, that kids raised in an intergenerational household with grandma, ma, and kids do about as poorly as kids raised by single moms on their own. So the idea that kind of like kin can take the place of a father, you know, it's just not borne out by, by the data here. Or we also see in that same research that kids who are raised by their aunts and uncles, um, as opposed to their own parents, uh, do worse. Um, so there's just, you know, tons of research basically showing us that kids are more likely to thrive when they're raised by their own married biological parents. Um, and I think the most telling statistic here, though, is that um, kids who are raised in a household where there's an unrelated adult, particularly an unrelated adult male, are about nine times more likely to be physically, sexually, or emotionally abused compared to kids who are raised by their own married biological parents, you know, who have that unique tie, that unique connection, that unique stake in them that is protective for kids on average. So you mean like the live-in boyfriend, for example? Exactly. That's the worst possible scenario for mm. you know, our kids. And unfortunately, of course, because of the family instability we see in some precincts of our society, you know, there are plenty of kids who are exposed to a guy who has no real relationship to them, you know, in the household. And that's just not that's not a great uh, a great thing for them. But the point is that I don't think David Brooks kind of really wrestled enough with that reality in the, the final third of his article. And again, there's just no replacement for, um, you know, kids own married parents. And there's there's just a ton of research on that score. That, I think, then begs the question, why? Are, are, are we just not intellectually curious because um, marriage is now open to anybody and anything and we have to retcon it now, uh, reverse engineer it now to, to justify our impulses, the current uh, trends, our, the zeitgeist. And, and so we've just got to do with your, with your data, Brad, what we do with the Las Vegas shooter and, and other stories that don't fit our narrative. Out the door they go, and we just willfully just, we just, it's not that we're lazy, to quote the great movie Office Space, it's not that we're lazy, Bob, it's that we just don't care. So which is it, Brad? Well, I think actually there's, there's a more, there's a sort of a, a dynamic playing out here where many of our elites actually, they give kind of lip service to the idea that family diversity is a good thing. We did a big survey in California just uh, a month ago, basically, and we found that college-educated Californians were the most likely in California to embrace family diversity, mm. and they were the least likely to have any concerns about uh, single women having kids on their own. So kind of in the abstract, in public, they're progressive. But then we ask them for yourselves, you know, is it personally important to you to have your kids in marriage? And, and the pattern basically reversed. So for those who are more educated in California, they're much more likely to say that that's important for them personally. And they're also more likely to be stably married compared to their less educated fellow Californians. So the point I'm making here is simply is that we have a lot of elites who talk left in public on family issues. But then when it comes to their own kids and their own, you know, strategy, they walk right, basically. Another, of course, case is, is technology. We know that Steve Jobs, for instance, wouldn't even give his kids the iPad because he wanted to, you know, protect their intellectual and social development. 
Um, so he limited their technological exposure. So the point here I'm making is that I think a lot of elites actually in practice would be living lives and are living lives um, that sort of conform to what you and I think is, is best for the kids. But for a variety of reasons, they either don't feel comfortable, um, they're not brave enough, or they haven't kind of put it all together um, that this approach doesn't really work as a public ethos that is sort of the family diversity approach. I'm curious, what kind of comments did you get to your rebuttal in The Atlantic? I'm familiar with that publication. Um, viewers and listeners to Blaze TV radio and podcast would not be the target demo, typically, of The Atlantic's readership. So I would be, I'd be fascinated to know how did they respond to your data-driven rebuttal? You know, I, I, I haven't looked at the comments um, at the Atlantic, and I, I honestly don't really do that. But I think in general, the kind of response that I get from my progressive colleagues um, in academia and journalism who write on these questions is they kind of think that everything boils down to economics and that you know any kinds of problems that we see in American families really are a consequence of increased economic inequality or... Um, so a Marxist increased. view that human... Civil, human history is determined by a struggle of, a class struggle. They have a Marxist worldview. Or, yeah, or a kind of, yeah, neo-Marxist view where they sort of mm-hmm. assume that everything boils down to economics. And I actually would, I, I agree that economics are pretty darn important. We know, for instance, that men who are stably employed are much more likely to get married and much more likely to stay married. And we've seen a lot more, you know, instability for men since the 1970s in the labor force in ways that have really hurt working class families. Um, so that, I think, perspective has some merit. But what they miss is obviously the cultural side and the way in which the cultural shifts um, in the late 60s and 70s really put us on a course um, where we don't take marriage as seriously as we used to. And we don't appreciate all the ways in which um, you know that commitment to marital permanency benefits especially our kids and, and our larger communities as well. Brad Wilcox is with us here on Blaze TV Radio and Podcast. He's with the National Marriage Project. Let's switch over and talk the relationship between feminism and the nuclear family. Can they can they coexist? Well, I think part of the answer to your question is sort of how you define feminism. If you define feminism as a kind of a liberal feminism where everything is kind of 50-50, um, I think that there are real problems in kind of seeing these two things as coexisting. And increasingly, I think we are kind of seeing in both the, ac- the academic world where I work and in um, the media, um, this idea that we have to move towards a world where everything is kind of divided on a 50-50 basis. Um, Egalitarianism is what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. Um, exactly. And that drives things like support, for instance, on the part of Senator Warren and Senator Sanders for things like universal child care, because to get that agenda, you know, that long term agenda of having everyone share everything 50 50 means you have to, um, you know, put your kids basically in, in daycare, um, you know, and, and then obviously have you know, send them off to school when they're school aged. So. I think that approach is not particularly compatible with, uh, you know, with strong and stable families. Because ultimately, that form of egalitarian feminism, which is the one that is is largely driving the the political political philosophical feminism we see in the public square today, that notion that that same that that equality equals sameness. 
that men and women are not of equal inherent value alone, but that they are inherently also the same, right? The old, the, the, the cliche, you know, a woman can do anything a man can do. Well, I can't do everything a woman can do. I can't, I can't birth a kid. Can you do that, Brad? I don't think you can either, right? No, so I, I so yeah, right, either right. either men are inferior to women or we're different then if, because we're not the same. But if, 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 if we're going to go with a nuclear family where obviously they each have a certain role, vital role to play within that equation on behalf of the marriage and the children, that would fly right in the face of an egalitarian uh, sameness equals equality notion. Right. I think the, the problem here is that there's not a recognition that um, when you kind of look at ordinary mom's preferences, you know, a clear majority of married moms in America today would prefer to work part time or to be at home full time. Um, and yet, you know, I think our economy and our culture um, and our politics are really not organized to sort of make those preferences um, kind of easily achieved. And, you know, so that's, I think, one reason why we are seeing our fertility um, fall to its lowest levels ever recorded here in the U.S. And also why we're seeing, um, you know, a comparatively high level of family instability now as compared to 50 or, or 100 years ago. Final question for you, Brad. This is where I think an initiative like yours can, can pay huge dividends beyond just your stated mission. And I'll go back to something I said a few minutes ago in our conversation. It, we, you have a, you have a, a data-driven mission uh, to advocate for marriage. And I think bringing that to the argument is vital in, in exposing or confronting who really is intellectually curious and, and who is here just to smash the stained glass windows, right? You see where I'm going with that? Sure. No, I, I think you're right. Yes. Can you give our audience, because you get a chance to, you know, most of our audience is never going to read The Atlantic, let alone be given an opportunity to engage an audience like that directly like you were. Can you give our audience an idea of how much earnest scrutiny there is on the other side of these uh, arguments against uh, traditionalism in some respect? how much earnest intellectual curiosity there is and then how much of it is, I, I don't give a care. I, I just, I want to reinvent Americana. Yeah, it depends. I think um, ironically in some of the more um, prestigious universities, what I see is a lot of serious scholars doing serious empirical work. Um, and if you have a good argument and if you've got good data behind your argument, they're willing to give it a, um, you know, give it a chance, give it a shot, give it a listen. Um, but I think in many other precincts um, and, you know, many liberal arts colleges and in, in much of the media, um, there is a kind of conventional wisdom that's taken. There's hold. a narrative that's that certain, they want to further, period. Right. Yeah. And, and they will do, um, you know, whatever it takes to advance that narrative. And they really can't hear you if you're saying things that don't conform to, uh, you know, to their narrative as well. Mm. Well, you're doing important work, Brad. We've been on the show. You've been with us on the show before. It's a pleasure to have you back. Thanks for joining us here today on The Blaze. Thanks for having me, Steve. Appreciate it. You bet. That's uh, Brad Wilcox over at the National Marriage Project. The conversation there at the end, um, to me, for the purposes of, of our audience and what our show does, I think that's the most important angle here. Because what is, if if you're, 
if you're talking with people who I'm going to need a little bit more than uh, thus speaketh the Lord God of hosts, okay? I don't, we're in a pluralistic society. I don't believe your system. I don't come from your background. Okay, I, hey, I respect that, right? We do live in a pluralistic society. You know, we're in a post-Christian culture. I don't, I, I, I shouldn't be offended. My own faith says to have evidence for the hope that I have, right? So if my faith commands me to have that, then the political, the, then the certain cultural philosophy I have that stems from that I, if, you know, I I, don't, I shouldn't be offended at offering evidence for why I have these cultural conclusions, right? Should I be offended at that? No. No. I think that's perfectly fine. The question is, how many people really want that evidence? And then how many people, it wouldn't matter wh- how much evidence you presented them, that um, it, it doesn't matter. I'm, I'm retconning your civilization. I'm, I'm, terraforming it into what I prefer. All right, we're doing an urban renewal program here and, you know, who cares? And I think it's important for us because we're in, we're, we're in a unique situation right now as, as members of the what's left of America where we, we've got to walk and chew gum here at the same time. We, we have to be willing to defend ourselves against the left America and understand that there's a, a cold civil war happening in the country. And Brad kind of touched on a little bit of that when he said, Hey, I mean, there's a lot of places I go in the media and stuff. It wouldn't matter what, what data I had that it doesn't, they got a narrative and and they're going with it. They're running with it. Right. I mean, how many times was it a few months ago back in January, actually a month ago, back in January, how many times was that NB did NBC tweet out that story? Uh, was it about polyamory or bigamy? Uh, what was it? Do you remember what it was? And Not it, off the top of my head, but I know what you're talking they about. They tweeted that thing out like a, a dozen times or whatever in 24 hours. All right. That, that's a technique known as jamming, where you just flood the, the zone with, with your message to make it look like it's omnipresent. Well, that requires one response, right? You should, you should look at those utilizing those, that kind of narrative tactic and realize these are acts of cultural war. There's not a negotiation happening here. We're not coming now and reasoning together. Well, this isn't, they're not, we're not having any exchange of ideas. They're firing on you. And you should defend your homestead accordingly, right? Mm-hmm. But here's the other issue. Here's the challenge we have with that. We need to add to our numbers. But we're not a silent majority anymore. Or if we still are, it's dying out and soon won't be. We, we've got to evangelize more often. We, we need to practice more multiplication. We got to do more persuasion. And if we just blanket treat everybody who doesn't come to the table with the same premises we do, blanket treat all of them and lump them all in as, you know, enemies of, of Americana, well, that ends up uh, becoming self-cannibalization because eventually we're going to be outnumbered here with the ideological spiritual trends in the culture. So we've got to do both at the same time. And I, you know, that's not unique by the way. I mean, if you go, if you go to the spread of the Christian church, they had to, they had to do those two things. They had to be, they had to beware of wolves in sheep's clothing. But then also, you know, 
often go into wolf's pens, not, you know, to save the save lost sheep at the same exact time. We've got to be able to do both of those things. We're, we're going to have to figure out, and that's where initiatives like what Brad is doing are key because they put the the data and that kind of thing out there. And, and, and that removes the false objection. You'll learn with, with resources like what, what they do at National Marriage Project, utilize those kinds of resources in your own argumentation, what you post about this stuff in your, in your, on your socials, et cetera. Because if you have people that just completely disregard it and go right to, no, notice I didn't say if you have people that argue with it. I, did I say that? No. Because somebody's arguing with you doesn't mean, you know, that's, that's actually in a good, we're engaging. We're, we're having an exchange. Cool, let's do this. But if you have people that just completely disregard the data and go right to their talking points, they're firing on you, okay? They're, they're, they wear the other uniform. They're in the opposing army here, okay? And, and I think we've got we've to figure out more and more how to do both of those things at the same time. Gentlemen, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I, I think Brad's existence... Uh, in the world he uh, lives in, and and uh, how he conducts himself, he he's a pretty um, even keeled soul. But he, I think, he exposes the nature of the left and its commitments to uh, the truth or otherwise. In the same way uh, as your entire notion of um, uh, paycheck withholding, mm-hmm. and how if I could do one thing to just wake, whoa, hold on a second here. Right. I mean, he's not. He's not a firebrand. He's just giving you the numbers. Uh, and if 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 the way he exposes the obvious nature of the truth of human nature and how it works, it it's it's a splash of cold water in the face. It's why I've had him back on the show multiple times because he's he's just water against the rock. It it, it there's there's the timeless nature of what he's providing is the antidote to so much for what's behind the show worldview meets data uh the things we need on multiple levels to wake us up if we could just once again settle on oh yeah this it go it, he's goes back to the beginning and he never once mentioned scripture but male and female he created them you if if you get that so much of the rest takes care of itself, which is why the fact that we don't get that all right now means we are as in deep a level of chaos as at any point in human history. Right. We're just too wealthy to know it right now. Yeah, I'm not, I'm, if you're a believer, you should not be afraid of intellectual curiosity. Unfortunately, all too often throughout the history of the church, we have been caught with our pants down as being uh, afraid of intellectual curiosity. But if God is sovereign, if the word of God is infallible, then what we find, the math in the natural world then should add up. Meaning that there should, if, if the stuff God says brings uh, blessing, ought to bring blessing, and the stuff God says brings cursing, ought to bring cursing. And if your if if your faith is so flimsy that it that it cannot withstand that level of intellectual curiosity, then I I think you should probably question the strength of your own faith and consider that it's maybe more of a wish and a sentiment. All right, I mean, um, God put Himself in human form lived with us, engaged our intellectual curiosities. I don't, I don't think we should be afraid of that at all, Aaron. So that's where I was, that's where I was kind of going to go with, with my thoughts on that conversation. 
because what you just said, that if what God says in Scripture is true, then that should be borne out through uh, general revelation. Uh, you know, yes. that, that, that this thing, that not the special revelation of Scripture, but uh, what God created. What God says in Scripture should be carried out within creation. And you see that's true because part of that, part of uh, one of the nuggets that, that Brad just dropped is that, you know, of course, if you're if you uh, have a stable job, you're more likely men. Uh, you're more likely to be married. Also, he said that um, that that there's this uh, kind of lip service um, amongst uh, more of the elites to all of these notions about marriage, but yet they are more likely to to live in a monogamous um, kind of traditional uh, mm-hmm. structure anyway. And what that shows you, what that shows you, is that yes. If you're rich, what do you most likely have? You most likely have a stable job. Uh, if you have a stable job, you're more likely to be married. And so all of that data is born out there. What that shows you, though, is that uh, amongst those in the culture who are attempting to undefine marriage and thus destroy it, there is conditioning. And then amongst – within conditioned, within the conditioned, there are a few true believers – and what your goal should be in the argumentation, and I'm not ta- talking about being uh, uh, just the apologetic of marriage, of God's design for marriage. Um, what, you, what your goal should be is to attempt to find out how deep the conditioning goes by making them answer uncomfortable questions and making them follow their conclusions to their natural to their natural ends. Yes. Like with the uh, polygamy debate that we right. had a, a couple of weeks ago. And if they are true believers, then they will follow. They will follow the natural conclusions and they will uphold them and laud them for actually being honest. But if it's just conditioning, you'll start to see the chinks in the armor form right away as soon as they have to say, well, you know, I guess polygamy isn't bad after all. And that should be, that should be the goal of the ar- argumentation. And where data and research comes into this is that you remove those red herrings. Well, I, you're just a, you're just a, a, a blowhard. You're just a, a Christian evangelical uh, blow. No, uh, here is what the data says. Mm-hmm. This is what's best for the human condition is this model for marriage. That removes, uh, that removes another false objection. That removes another red herring and gets you closer to having them confront the real questions about undefining and destroying marriage that they would rather not do. Very well said. We'll come back. Theology Thursday is next right here on Blaze TV, radio and podcast. All right, we are back here. Let's get to Theology Thursday to wrap it up here today on the Steve Day Show on Blaze TV, radio, and podcast. And uh, just a reminder, we're doing a series uh, that goes alongside the uh, New Testament class that uh, my wife and I are taking right now at our church. That's kind of a New Testament 101 seminary college credit type of course. And each week, uh, as we go through whatever portions of the New Testament we're going through that week, we have to write. Uh, a brief paper, uh, an- either answering one of the the given questions or picking up something original that we want to answer. And this week, we're looking at First and Second Thessalonians, and the question that I chose to answer about First and Second Thessalonians was this one: 
if all we had were just these two letters, First and Second Thessalonians, what would you learn about the Apostle Paul? So I chose this question. And one of the reasons why I highlight Paul a lot on this show goes even beyond the fact he wrote most of the New Testament, okay? And, and other than Christ himself is the most influential theological figure in the church um, ever, and certainly on a human level until we get to Augustine and, figure, and, and church figures like that. And, um, but he also had a unique station in society in that he was a free, air quotes, a free man as a Roman citizen. What did that mean? It means he could choose whom to marry out of consent and love without it being imposed on him from the state or denied it because he was a lower class individual. He could travel freely throughout the empire uh, with limited oversight, you know, permission, etc. Uh, he could, he was given certain, what we would call today, habeas corpus civil rights, you know, right to a fair trial, a right to, you know, call his own witnesses in his defense, things of that nature. Uh, he was, he was, he, he walked the, the fine line that we walk, that we walk as American believers or Western believers, that we get to live in a free society. And so how do we choose to use that civil freedom? And, it, and you see how Paul chooses to use it throughout the New Testament. He chooses to use it in a way that gives him greater standing to advance the gospel. And that's why I think he's an excellent model for us to try to emulate. Because a lot of, you know, I've talked about this before. Why choose this guy named Saul on the road to Damascus? Did they... They spin the wheel of destiny up there in heaven, and it landed on this guy. Uh, maybe that happened. I don't know. But if it did, it's an awfully eerie coincidence that the one that was chosen um, to be the apostle to the Gentiles, meaning the non-Jewish people, uh, the one that was chosen to, to, to do that, to fulfill that calling and obligation, just so happened to be somebody who is very rare in first century Judea, very rare. And who knows, maybe an audience of, I mean, he might be alone, who knows? We're not talking about a large population of people and we're not talking about a large nation here, all right? So the amount of people that were both fully Jewish and then fully Roman at the same time, very, very elite company. Somebody who could, with with limited permission needed, be welcomed through the front door of any synagogue, house of worship, of, of Jehovah worship in all of the Roman Empire because of his standing within the Jewish religious community. And then at the same time, somebody that could then freely go to all of those Gentile places throughout the Roman Empire because of, a Roman, of his Roman citizenship. I mean, that's very rare. And maybe he's the only one that had that. I, I don't know that we'll ever get the answer to that. But we just know from history, there weren't a lot of, of, of Jews that had the level of civil liberty 
at their at, at their disposal that that the apostle Paul had. And I think the way he chooses to navigate those freedoms and civil liberties and integrate them with his faith, I think are a model. You know, when I the whole what would Jesus do thing, well, I mean, if you're a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit within you. You don't need a trinket. You don't, don't need to buy a, you know, a wristwatch or band. You know, pray. Just ask. You know, I think it's far more applicable to ask yourself, what would Paul do? Because as a mere human being, you know, I kind of almost think that what would Jesus do in a way is like the question, the debate you had a few years ago with the guy at the newspaper, would Jesus own a gun? Mm-hmm. You know, like somebody sent me an email the other day, how would Jesus vote? I, I, I don't think he would because he's God. And I, I just, yeah. I don't think it's applicable. File these under reject the premise. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I don't, I don't. And, and the next time he comes back, the first time he arrived, they didn't have, voting wasn't an option. And the second time uh, when he comes back, um, he's the deciding vote, if you know what I'm saying, Jay. All right? Not going to need voting anymore. He's going he's gonna to cast that last vote. You know what I'm saying? So Something like this? Yeah, he's going to be the one holding the thumb. Yeah, exactly. I think it's far more applicable for us who are just merely human, and to ask ourselves, what would Paul do? Because that's what he was, merely human. And living as a free person with a devout religion, religious faith, and about the only thing you could do in, in first century Rome to make yourself more marginalized than, than being a Jew <laughs> was being a Jew worship Jesus. You couldn't get more, much more marginalized amongst the, amongst the Roman uh, societal uh, grand scheme of things. Uh, you couldn't get much lower than the way they saw the Jewish people than if you were a Jew that believed Jesus was the Messiah. All right, so I think that's somebody for us to emulate. That's why I would highly recommend the movie that came out a couple years ago. Uh, that James Caviezel was in playing uh, the uh, uh, playing Luke. Uh, I think it was called the Apostle Paul. Isn't that what it was called? Yeah. yeah. Yes. That mm-hmm. movie's it's it's not as exhilarating as a God's Not Dead or um, I can only imagine it. This is not a movie at the end that we're just like, man, I'm I'm ready to go take on the day and and ser-. no, it's not like that. This is a movie. That is, it's a really convicting movie, a serious thinking movie. And a lot of it is about navigating these two worlds at the same time. How do we be in the world and not of it? All right. And so that's why I wanted to answer these questions about Paul from First and Second Thessalonians. Because in here, I think you see Paul exemplify the comprehensiveness of a biblical worldview, but then the fullness of his apostolic calling at the exact same time. And he does them both with challenges and conviction. And if you look at the way that Paul expresses a biblical worldview, one of the false choices that I think we struggle with in the church in America is either a focus, a heavy focus on teaching, uh, the premise, or of the Christian faith, or practice, how to, how to love better, serve more, the application, right? Um, and, and this could be seen like in churches that are either strong in their doctrine, but maybe not in their outreach, or churches that place... Uh, so much focus on community involvement, they become glorified, united ways with Bible verses. They either really don't believe or aren't serious about taking to their full context. Um, 
not to pander, but this is one of the things that drew us to the church that we go to now is its motto. It can, have, it can You can have a great motto. I mean, you, if you, some of you all over the country will send me notes all the time. Hey, what do you think of this church, that church? And I've often responded, you know, it's very seldom you're going to go to the church with the two lesbian cat lady ministers and they're going to put on their website, our mission statement, it'll be the two lesbian cat lady ministers and we're here to smash your stained glass. Window. They don't put that on their websites, right? On everybody's website, guys, it's it's the Apostolic Creed and the all right and and the Westminster Confession on everybody's website. Okay, uh, then don't go to wolf.com. That's not going to be your local heretical church. That's probably going to be like a nature study. Okay, so <clears throat> just remember what Augustine said: there are many sheep without, but there are many wolves within. Right, and so. You know, the church we go to now, Valley Church here in Des Moines, it's got a great motto. We do good works to to build goodwill so we can preach good news. That's a great motto, right? But if if I don't see any practice with that, then that's all that it is. And it just so happened the week that we chose to visit it, they were in the middle of doing a series on Romans, like it was providential. And Romans to me is is your, also written by Paul, uh, Romans to me is your litmus test about whether you're serious about this thing or not. You cannot water Romans down if you try. You like either have to skip over it totally or skip over it sectionally. It, when, when societies embrace the rainbow jihad and get rid of religious, free, religious freedom, see that as uh, biblical teaching because they don't get rid of religious freedom, freedom, just the biblical kind. The first two books they always go after are Le- Leviticus and the Old Testament. All right, and why? Because Leviticus is a is an Old Testament understanding of how to live out a biblical worldview. Okay, and then Romans in the New Testament. Why? Because Romans is a New Testament understanding of how to live out a biblical worldview. And in order to live out a biblical worldview, it means we got to draw some lines and say that stuff's bad and this stuff's good. Well, we don't want you drawing those lines, so that's got to go. Okay, so Romans to me is a is a marker. It, it tells. I, it, I don't know if Will Rogers said this too, but he said a lot about a pastor, about what they do with the book of Romans. Now, Will Rogers didn't say that. Steve Dace did, and you can buy and sell that. Go and tell that, homeboy, all right? So they're doing a series on our church on Romans. So, I mean, I I jumped online. They're right in the middle of it. I want to see what they've done like the last three, four weeks in a row, and I watched. I was very impressed. And if they had not passed that litmus test, we'd never walk through the front door. That didn't matter how big the campus was, all the other programs, no, no, no had passed that litmus test. Um, And that's what you're looking for. You're not looking for a choice between serving the unsaved to show Christ's love or shepherding the saved to remain in his word. You're not looking for a choice between those things. You're looking for a a church that does both of those things. That's, That's the ministry. That's the job. We see Paul demonstrate the wholeness of the Christian life and how he calls believers to holiness. He addresses immorality, including sexual immorality, uh, the need to be self-reliant and responsible. Don't be a sloth. Work. Whoever shall not work shall not eat. Okay? While also calling the believers uh, there to love more, live quiet lives that demonstrate the peace of God. So in our culture today, we might see um, a United Methodist Church with a lesbian minister demanding more and more funding for a welfare state or other pet causes of the social justice movement, while at the same time emphasizing more love and mercy in personal relationships and reaching out to those who are marginalized. She's half right. Um, 
And the latter half of that equation can absolutely be Christ-like, but in her immorality, as well as in her incentivizing of dependency, which is different from a social safety net, what she's asking for. Uh, she's encouraging a worldview that's really anathema to what Paul teaches here in First and Second Thessalonians. On the other hand, you might also run into, say, a fundamentalist Baptist church that is strong in its doctrine with a congregation that knows the word, is serious about living righteously and independently, self-reliantly, yet they can also be so insulated they lack a connection with their neighbors, uh, let alone the community as a whole. Maybe they're even cut off from unbelieving members of their own family and not because those family members have done so themselves out of offense at the gospel. If that happens, so be it. But, but maybe it happens because they don't, those family members don't feel like they can have a relationship with you without the topic of religion being force-fed into every conversation. Like you can't, they can't just live with you, exist with you. You're kind of the Christian version of what we say about identity politics. Hey, when you're, when you're done having gay sex, what's your favorite ball team, dude? Hey, when you're done having gay sex, what do you think? Country, rock, synth rock, goth rock. What are you into? You know what I'm saying? You're like the Christian version of that. Like you're never done preaching by being preachy. You're never done with that. There's, you never have a Sabbath, ever. In short, what Paul models to the Thessalonians is what Christ challenges, uh, is, is, is how Christ challenges the Pharisees in the gospel. Live the spirit and the letter of the law. Live them both. Living the striving to live the letter of the law shows that you respect the spirit in which the law was given. And then honoring the spirit of the law shows that you truly love the law of God. And you're not just checking boxes here and, uh, and you know, just doing a rote exercise. If I, if I show up with flowers on our anniversary here, I think my wife appreciates that. Probably not. No. Because what did I do? Let's check the box. That's the day. That's, my re that's what I'm required to do. There's no love or devotion there. In fact, I, I see, I'm, I'm sending the message to her that my acknowledgement of this occasion, of this ritual, of this sacrament, my acknowledgement of this, I don't have a high regard for it. it, it it's a chore to me. I'd rather not be doing it, but I feel like I'm compelled, right? And this brings us to Paul's apostolic calling. Well, now this is this is given him given to him supernaturally, and so we see a man of tremendous courage of conviction, but he's also made vulnerable uh, after the suffering he uh, he had to go through in a place called Philippi. Before this, we see a man that is desperate to reconnect with his followers. Um, he wants to go places, but that connection, reconnection is denied. We see a man stressing themes he will have to reinforce numerous times throughout his ministry, uh, which can be exhausting for anyone in a leadership position. We all, hey, as a father, don't you love repeating yourself over and over again to your kids? It's a joy. <laughs> I like the sound of my own voice. Yes. Because having to repeat it means they didn't do what the last time you mentioned it. They, they did not do they, it. They did not do it. Yeah. Nothing, nothing honors you more as a dad than having to repeat yourself over and over and over again, right? Makes you feel like they're really into it, really respect you and appreciate you, right? That's how Paul feels. He's got he's to stress these themes over and over. And he has to address like sexual immorality everywhere he goes, into every community he goes, for example, okay? So 
Keep in mind, though, he has a supernatural apostolic calling none of the rest of us will ever have. And yet, even with that supernatural calling, he still has these struggles. He still goes through these kinds of persecutions. And we see him persevere to the end. And I think Paul's life is a case study in the tension that is presented by Christianity, that mercy does triumph over judgment, but yet judgment is coming, that Christ is Lord of all now, but his kingdom has yet to fully arrive, etc. And I think you see the full comprehensiveness of what a biblical worldview looks like to live out, even with all of its you know, uh, imperfections and, and, and jagged paths. I think you see that in the way that Paul lives his life, which is why I think we should strive to emulate him, or as he puts it, follow him more as he follows Christ. Gentlemen, you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, two things. You're losing a little bit on your trolling fastball. I would have given really good money. What's the famous uh, Thessalonians verse that's about the rapture? Oh, that um, the one about well, it, it, the word rapture is not in the Bible. I know, Harpezo, no, but this is it's but used. They, yeah, that you have not. They think they've been left behind, right? Is that what you're talking yeah, about? Yeah, it's there's the one Thessalonians of the pri- believe they have been left behind and that they've missed the second coming. It's one of the primary verses. Anyways, uh, I, if you would have led with that and got this audience like, oh, Nelly, uh, and then going on. You yeah, that put- was one of the questions that was suggested. I I did not choose that question. Oh, yeah, yeah. You should have at least. I, I did not. Yeah. Uh, anyways, the other thing is about this is the um, nature of the beast with um, uh, Sol Rabamari and the redefining conservatism. It's like we, we're leaving half of what we're supposed to behind. We're not talking to people what they really need where they live. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you talk about the, the tension of the Christian walk, and, and that should um, – that should uh, – Invoke a response of humility, uh, in that we would, in that we would uh, give up trying to control things or making things perfect. This this side of Eden, we should always strive after Christ, but we should never think that we ourselves are going to achieve uh, through our own means mm-hmm. uh, what is spelled out in in the book. And you see that tension all the time, and the false choices we're confronted with all the time, and I like the way this was articulated today. Thank you. We're going to stick around and do the overtime looking ahead to the South Carolina primary over at blazetv.com slash days. For the rest of you, we will see you tomorrow. Until then, John 317. This is Steve Dace on the Blaze Radio Network.